Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and I'm just so glad you're here. This podcast is designed to dig below the surface and to hold space for meaningful conversations. We're going to talk about life and love and basically everything in between. This is a place where done is better than perfect, where quality triumphs quantity, and where you can really just come as you are. So go ahead and leave that Superman cape of having it all together at the door because life is freaking messy. Don't I know it, y'all? Now, not only are we going to be real, we're going to have fun too. Scout's honor. I promise you this. I will find any excuse to bring up Beyonce or the latest episode of The Bachelorette. So if you're a new friend, you are so welcome. And before we get started, pause and make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective Podcast on iTunes so that each week when a new episode drops, it'll download straight to those devices. And if you're an old friend, um, welcome back. Hi there. I already know you're all subscribed and good to go, but would you do me a quick favor? Hop on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and written review. I would be incredibly grateful for that. Now, I used to feel like all weird and awkward about asking you to do this, but then I listened to Oprah's podcast and even she asks her listeners to do it. In the podcast world, those subscribes and ratings and reviews really, really help us. So thank you in advance. You are the best. Finally, if something stands out to you in this episode, find me on Instagram at The Refined Woman or my podcast specific account at The Refined Collective and send me a message. I would absolutely love to hear from you. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to another episode of the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and today we have Harmony Grillo with us. She was a victim of exploitation turned UCLA honor student, and in 2003, Harmony founded Treasures, a nonprofit organization to help women and girls entrenched in sexual exploitation to find freedom. She has provided training for the Department of Justice and the FBI, which I want to hear all the secrets, and <laughs> has helped launch outreaches in 120 cities worldwide. Her story has been featured on NPR and Glamour and in her memoir, Scars and Stilettos. And today I have the privilege of chatting with her. So Harmony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I mean, hello, Miss Speaking to the FBI and NPR. (laughs) (laughs) And you were supposed to be doing a TED Talk. Yeah. Like right around now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, what's funny. I posted last week. I thought I was supposed to be last Saturday, but our gala was supposed to be last Saturday. Mm. My Ted talk was supposed to be May 30th. Oh my gosh. Um, Gala, Ted talks. Right. (laughs) Wow. Okay. What was that process like? Because I know getting into the TEDx program is, is not easy. It's super hard. So what was that like for you? You know what? It was like two years ago, I found out that UCLA had a TEDx and I'm like, well, I'm a UCLA alum. Mm. So um, let me just see if I can apply. And the first round of applications, they didn't respond. And then this next round, I proposed doing a talk on decriminalization of prostitution. And they, to my surprise, said yes. So there's like an interview process where you have to interview with a panel of people that select the you know, final speakers. And then, um, yeah, so I was just, and then you have to turn in your speech and you have to go through, you know, all this like approval before you actually do it on the day. But we're in the middle of all that process when the pandemic happened. So we'll see there's thinking that it might get rescheduled for the fall, but I hold, I hold everything with an open hand. It's like until something goes live or online or is whatever, I'm like, we'll see. Maybe, totally. maybe not, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. And I don't know about you, but everything that's going on with COVID and where our world is right now, I think one of the biggest invitations for me it was lean, is leaning into surrender and trust. Yeah. And I am like, right. planner, like, where mm-hmm. do I see myself in five years? What's my vision? Like, where, yeah. where do I want to go? Where am I headed? And literally every day I'm like, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I don't right. know. Like, totally. I don't know when I'm going back to New York. I don't know when, what this looks like. I don't know what's next. And it's right. been such, it's felt like I'm kind of floating, but in that I also feel like, well, Catherine, did you ever have control? 
Like, yes. or was it all just a, a elusive? Right. You know what? It's so funny that you mentioned that because I completely relate to that. And I really feel like there's such um, peace that comes with that level of surrender. And for, again, a t- personality type like mine, it doesn't come easily because I'm also a planner and a to-do list girl and all of that. But about 10 or so years ago, I went through a separation and a divorce. It's, um, you know, as a result of affairs, but I went through this process of being left with all this debt and a house that I couldn't afford the mortgage on. And it was in the middle of the, um, recession and I was fighting with the banks to try to keep my house and wondering, you know, where will my daughter, daughter and I live if I lose this house and what's going to happen to me? Am I going bankrupt? And I finally had this moment where I was sitting in my living room And I, it just, it hit me and I realized the house never belonged to me in the first place. First Mm. of all, it actually belonged to the bank because I owed money on it. Right. (laughs) And second of all, like everything I have is given to me to steward and it's not really mine. And if I like, and of course I don't think like this on all like peaceful and surrendered every moment of the day, but when I can get to that place where it's like, you know what, (laughs) it's not mine. I'm stewarding it. Many are the plans of a man's heart, but the way the Lord prevails, like, yeah, I thought I was going to be doing a TED talk on May 30th, but I'm not, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and it, and it's still going to be okay. And I'm going to be okay. It's not going to look the way I thought it would, but I'm going to be okay. So anyways, there's such peace in that state of surrender. And what about our lives anyways, turns out the way we thought, hoped or planned, you know, and I also, I, I, I always think of not always, but I think often of a woman in the Old Testament, Hannah and first Samuel one, and she's barren, doesn't like can't have children. And so, you know, in the olden days, that's your lot in life as a woman. And if Mm -hmm. you can't do that, like Mm -hmm. her husband could have made her into a slave or thrown her out on the streets. And she had no rights socially, culturally or religiously yet. Her husband was in love with her and she just kept begging God for Mm -hmm. a child for all these years. And it was like messy and she was bitter about it. And, but she just kept going to God. And at the Mm -hmm. end of her life, she doesn't have one child, but six. Mm. And I just think, so, well, and then if you look back through her whole life, there's like the presence of God and favor in her life. And right. I think about all the things in my life where I'm like, man, this is not going the way I wanted to. And not totally. to say like, this isn't like health, wealth, prosperity gospel of like, if you just keep praying, you're not going to get one, right. you're going to get six. Right, um, right. But just how like God's plans are more imaginative than we could uh, ever think. And I just think, man, what's that thing in my life where I'm like, if this one thing could happen, yeah. Then it would change everything. And God's like, girl, you are thinking small. Like right. you, you want the one thing and I got the the whole massive thing for you over here. If you just surrender yeah. and like release the attachment. Yeah. Um, so two things on that one, I I've had a history of, um, just dealing with infertility, mm. but both of my children are rainbow babies. I've lost, um, seven babies and oh my so that pro- process was so hard, but I, I will say that both times I held my child in my arms, I, and I, my husband and I say to this day, like, this is the person that belongs in our family. And I can't imagine anyone else being in our family. And of course, there's still the grief to hold for the children that we lost. And there's still that pain and I've named them and I've gone through, you know, grief recovery over it, but still it's like, oh, I want Luca and Johnny. That's who belongs to my family. And it didn't look how I thought it would, but it's, it's how I I love the way it is. And then similarly, um, after my divorce, I had this moment with God where I just was really grieving and crying out and just saying like, this didn't turn out how I thought it would. Like Mm. I genuinely desired to get, to stay married and grow old together. And that was the dream that I had for my life. And you know, God just met me in that place of pain and lament. And eventually after some time, he said to me, I heard, I just heard him speak to my heart harmony. I rescued you. And I was like, wait, what? Like that? I'm sorry, but like, I just lost my house. I'm divorced. I'm a single mom. My finances are in ruin. What about this is rescue? And he said to me, I rescued you from your version of the dream and I will redeem the dream. And I just held on to that as such a promise that 
even in the midst of that grief, trusting like God would redeem, God would use all things together for good. And I had seen him do that already in my history. We haven't even gotten there, but history of sexual exploitation, history of rape and abuse. And, you know, and I've watched the way God has redeemed those things and he uses it for purpose in my life today. And I get to help other people find freedom from exploitation and trafficking in the commercial sex industry. So I, and I trust that God would redeem the dream just as he promised. And I'm here to tell you now on the other end of it, that he has redeemed that dream. I did end up, um, one of the things he promised is that he would restore family to me. And there was a point where I was like, you know what, maybe it's just going to look like my friends become family. And he's just given me friends that are like family. And it was hard to even be able to articulate that what I wanted was to be married again and have that, you know, family unit. And so, but he, long story short, he did end up bringing me an incredible man who loves and honors me, who has been a father to my daughter. And now we've had a son together as well. And I, I'm living God's just promise of restoration. Wow. Wow. I mean, I just have goosebumps all over my body. Mm -hmm. Um, Gosh, thank you for sharing that. What this isn't where yeah. I, I thought we were going, but wow. I mean, your story is powerful. Mm. Um, and so what if let's take it back a little bit, okay. you know, before <laughs> before treasures, before I mean, already just what you shared is such a powerful story of life not turning out the way you thought it would turn out. And mm -hmm. like it's like when you're at your rock bottom, like I can only imagine hearing this voice of God of like, this is this is for your good. I would just be like, well, why don't you go ahead and kick me while I'm down? Totally. I'm like, oh, I'm being, this is rescue? Like, really? My life is in shambles. This like, is my rescue? <laughs> this is what rescue looks like? Like, this is not the picture that was painted right. for me, you right. know? Um, so what can you unpack your, I mean, you have an incredible nonprofit organization that is supporting women all over the world in sexual exploitation to find freedom. Mm -hmm. And I, I know there's a story there behind that. So yeah. can you just tell us a little bit about how you got there? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I, I have a history of, um, a lot of abuse and trauma. Unfortunately, you know, my mother herself was a victim of trauma and abuse and, generationally, those cycles continued, you know, in her parenting. And I genuinely think that she's a, she was, she's no longer with us, but she was a good person, but she was a very broken person and many times parented out of that brokenness. And so, um, and had just a lot of unresolved trauma. So, um, you know, when she had, she suffered from a drug addiction. And so that also just left my brother and I very vulnerable to, predators and abusers. And one of my abusers was one of her boyfriends. And when I finally was 13 and I finally started standing up for myself and ran away from home, she sent him away so that I could come home. And then as soon as I got home, she ended up leaving with him to go to Canada. So I'm in LA, Venice, grew up in Venice and she went to Canada with him. Um, and she left my brother and I for three months with $20 and a book of food stamps. And, oh my um, gosh. And yeah, wait, you were so, 13? I was 13 and my brother was eight. And, you know, honestly, How did at the you time, guys pay rent? <laughs> so we had a landlord who had inherited this house from a girlfriend and he didn't owe a mortgage. And I thank God for him because my mom one time, at one point went nine months without paying rent. And he would come and he would yell and he would scream and he would bang on our door, but he never had the heart to put us on the street. And if it weren't for him... I would definitely be homeless. And so actually when he would come around um, to collect rent, my brother and I would do what we had always done. And we would, our house had a lot of windows. So you, and there was never any blinds closed. So we would lay down underneath the windowsill. So when he peeked in the windows, he, because of his, the angle he was at, he couldn't see us. So we would just lay there and wait until he finally left. And then, you know, he'd come back whenever he came back and we'd hide again. And, um, and so that's how we didn't end up losing the house. Um, but of course the money didn't last long. I started stealing from the liquor store to get food for us. And my, um, I had a friend, an older boy in the neighborhood who now I can look back and see was he preyed on our vulnerability, but he would buy us food. And, you know, I lived in a neighborhood where there was a war between the two gangs that occupied the neighborhood I lived in gunshots every single night. Like it was literally a war zone. 
And he would, you know, say, I've got your back, I'll take care of you. And so he gave me the sense of protection and provision that I had always really wanted and craved from a male figure. And I really became dependent on him. And now what I know is a trauma bond. And um, that he ended up becoming um, my abuser and my exploiter at 19. I started working in strip clubs and essentially he was my pimp. And just was in this like really downward spiral of life. Honestly, did not think I would live to see 21. Thought if I didn't take myself out, someone else would. Just it, I had that level of, you know, that sense of just I'm not going to make it, you know. Um, and the catalyst for change for me really started with um, this young woman I, I met. She was like 20 nothing and college <laughs> student. Like, and she herself was just like had just started walking with God and she just loved me unconditionally. She never judged me. She never put pressure on me and made me feel like I had to change or like she wanted to fix me. Like she just loved me and met me right where I was at. And it was through that friendship that I ultimately experienced God's love for me and was inspired to start my relationship with God. And that just put me on this full on trajectory, not, not only of like, um, you know, a spiritual journey of health and growing and, understanding who I am and who God is and true identity, but also of emotional healing as well from all of the trauma. And from the beginning, I knew that I just had this sense that I was going to have to be, I was going to be held accountable for the choices I made in the process because I was going to have to share my process with other people. And so I just knew from the beginning that it was going to be used in some way. And and here we are. And I started Treasures in 2003. And I, this isn't what I, I couldn't have imagined this, but it's, it's perfect. And I love it. And I'm so thankful. This episode of the Refined Collective Podcast is brought to you by my very own free guide for single women, six tips to activate your dating life. Raise your hand if dating as a woman of faith in today's swipe right, swipe left culture has ever felt like a total struggle fest. Or maybe being single in our culture today feels overwhelming, lonely, discouraging, frustrating. And maybe if you're being really honest, it can even feel hopeless. Listen, single gal to single gal, I totally get it. But did you know that doing the same thing over and over again while expecting different results is known as the insanity cycle? Friend, it is time to walk into a freeing, exciting, and purpose-filled season of singleness. It's time to activate your dating life. I created a free guide for you, and by free, I mean $0, called Six Tips to Activate Your Dating Life to equip you to shake things up in your season of singleness. You can grab it right now at bit.ly slash TRW Dating Tips. Now you will walk away knowing, number one, the biggest mindset shift that will transform how you show up in your dating life. Number two, I'm going to teach you how to get unstuck in your dating life. And three, I will show you the number one thing you can start doing today that will radically change your season of singleness. And finally, the three things I wish someone would have told me 10 years ago about dating. You don't have to wander around for years like I did, insecure, uncertain, and discouraged about your dating or lack thereof life. So if any of this resonates with you, pause and go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash T-R-W dating tips and grab your free guide. Again, that's bit.ly slash T-R-W dating tips. All right, let's get back to it. When you talk about this guy in your neighborhood who ended up being mm-hmm. your pimp and abuser, mm-hmm. like what I'm curious about in that is I feel like when you, I've been in, I wouldn't say abusive situations with men, but my dad is an addict and there's a, di- a ton of addiction in my family. And mm-hmm. even when you said trauma bond, I don't know if this is the same thing, but out of the trauma I experienced, I attracted emotionally unavailable, addictive, narcissistic type men for most of my life yeah. because that's I, it's like you don't know in the moment, like, oh, I'm attracted to this because this is all I know. Right. 
But what was that progression like for you of, oh, like this person is helping us. How did you get from there to being in the strip club? And was that a decision that like you were like, I really want to be here? And because I know I have some friends who are very pro porn and they're like, well, everyone who's in like most of the women in pornography or in strip clubs, they love it. Like they're making the money that they want to make. And why are we judging them? Right. And so what was your story in that? You know, you just opened up like seven different cans of worms and I love every (laughs) single one of them. Like there's so many things to address in those questions. Um, let me see where to start. So It's interesting because, you know, since I first wrote about our relationship in, you know, Scars and Stilettos, my understanding also of all the dynamics that kept me attached to him have changed. And it's funny because I, I wrote that book initially and really what God led me to do is just tell the story as it happened. And I didn't even understand trauma bonds at the time, but now when I look back I'm describing trauma bonds, but I'm not using the language. So when you talk about trauma bonds, essentially it's, there's a power imbalance and, um, in in a relationship and it's where there's sporadic abuse with intermittent, like times where it's good. It's very similar to what you see in domestic violence, right? When you look at the cycle of violence and it's not all violence, violence, bad, 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 right? Most of it, almost no one would stay for that, but it's the, it's the, the, the violence and abuse interspersed with those moments where you think, oh, this is how it could be if I could just get it to stay like this. And so, and it creates this very strong bond that is difficult to break known as a trauma bond. And, um, but then, so for me that the trajectory of that relationship was that summer, I really started developing this belief that my survival depended on him. So in addition to trauma bond, the other thing that I I recognized was happening was codependency. And when, you know, you talk about the uh, habit and pattern of being drawn to people with narcissistic manipulative tendencies, I'm not saying this of you because I don't know you well enough to say that. But what I will say is that pattern is very much something that people who struggle with codependency end up in that pattern. So those of us that, you know, are raised by people who suffer from addiction, we learn these codependent patterns of relating and connecting to people. We learn, you know, to disconnect ourselves from our own wants, needs, and feelings and center our lives around the wants, needs, and feelings of other people. And then when we go on to choose relationships outside of our family of origin, many of us choose relationships with people who are addicts, narcissists, people with manipulative tendencies, abusers, and we, cause that pattern of disconnecting from ourself and that, that disruption in our own identity makes that possible to just to continue that. And so for sure that was playing into, um, just the, the level of deep attachment that I felt to him in this belief, like I couldn't live without him. I actually believe that, like, I believe that. And, um, obviously now I know that's not true. So when the way the whole thing started is he was going to he, he had, he was actually living at, with me starting at the age of 15. My mom took him in. He had also had a history of trauma, been in and out of foster care. And when my mom kicked him out, he was on the streets and he was saying that he was going to have to leave and go into the military and I might never see him again. And that for me kicked in this deep fear of abandonment. And what can I do to make you stay? What can I do to help you? And I started at that point giving him, I emptied my savings account, gave him all my money. And I started giving him whatever money I had then to help him keep this apartment that we got him in Venice. And then when that wasn't enough, I started stealing. And when that wasn't enough, he started, you know, coming up with these schemes and crimes for me to commit. And, you know, I was basically like his puppet criminal and part of it too. And there's, you know, this whole other thing that comes into play, white privilege as well. Me being, you know, a white, a white person, like I could commit crimes and not be caught for them that he would never be able to as an African-American male. And so, um, but when I turned 18, I told him like, I can't, like, I'm, I don't want to get arrested. Like this would be the worst thing for us. And then what, then what are you going to do if I'm in jail? And so that's when, okay, let's figure out some other ways of making money. That's kind of when, um, stripping was suggested to me. And I really hoped that he would say, no way. I hoped like he would be jealous and I didn't want to do it. Um, but 
it just, for me, began to feel like there weren't any other options. He was encouraging me to do it. Everyone around me had that mentality of why not use your body, use what, you know, and so there was all this push kind of in that direction. And I finally, uh, agreed to go do it. And I really thought I would only be there for, you know, a couple months to pay off some debt. That's what he told me. You just go and work for a couple months, pay off some debt, and then you can get out. But it just, I was stuck. I stayed stuck like a lot of women. And, um, there was initially this false sense of empowerment, like this feeling. And I think that's part of the lure of the commercial sex industry for a lot of people. You know, there's a very, um, high correlation between people with a history of abuse and trauma, childhood abuse and trauma and working in the sex industry, up to 90% of women in the commercial sex industry have a history of childhood abuse. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that the sex industry does offer this false sense of empowerment that you can take back control of your sexuality and be in charge now of the thing that was violated and that you can take back control in an area where you were victimized. But it's a false sense of empowerment because I've quickly realized, oh, I actually have no power because the person with the money has the power in this equation. And I'm now just <laughs> re-exploiting myself. The only difference is, is money is passing through my fingers and going to my pimp, you know? So, but anyways, I've, I've, there, there you have it. There's a couple of the cans of worms that we addressed. <laughs> and here's, I have a couple of questions in, in response to that is one. Um, so was he working at this time? no, (laughs) he was, no, that's not how it works. So what was homeboy? And also it sounds like a very different Venice than the Abbott Kinney. Oh no. That you see on Instagram these days. (laughs) It's a very different Venice. No, it is not the Venice. Yeah. It's not the Venice you see on Instagram. It's like, this is Venice in the eighties and early nineties. And, um, you know, it's definitely, been gentrified and gone through a lot of transitions since then. But, um, yeah, so it's not that Venice, but no, he wasn't working. He played basketball every day and his pretty much his one job in life was to control me. And then, um, he actually started, you know, using me to recruit other women out of the club who ended up working for him too. This might be a little bit of a side tangent, but it's related. So then what are your thoughts about movies like Hustlers with Jennifer Lopez and even um, like the Super Bowl performance with J-Lo? I mean, I... I watched that performance and I was like, dang, she's 50. She looks amazing. She's sexy. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Like she's empowered. And I put something on Instagram and one of my friends, Andy Andrew texted me and she's like, girl, you do not know what you're talking about. Like I'm sitting here trying to raise high school boys and this is like stripping, being normalized. And so what are your thoughts on like, what are your thoughts on that? Like JLo's Super Bowl performance and... Yeah. All right. We'll go here. So here's the deal. People were blowing out my email and my messenger and whatever, asking me for commentary on both of those things. And I chose to not respond, (laughs) but (laughs) I'll go ahead and answer the question because here's the thing. There is an expectation because of what I do. And I have a very, I have a lot of soapboxes and I will get on them. There's an expectation that I'm going to have, I'm going to speak out strongly and say something. I don't know that people want me to say whatever, but one of the reasons I am really reluctant to speak into this very strongly is because we're talking about real people. Like JLo is a person. She's a celebrity, which I think has a lot of people, you know, gives a lot of people a sense of permission to speak about her and judge her. Mm -hmm. But would we speak about her the same way if we were going to have lunch with her the next day? And you have to, so if I'm going to come out and make this big statement about JLo on, on a stripper pole at the Super Bowl, also, how's that going to impact the woman who shows up at our support group, who probably had some experiences that were way more intense than a stripper pole at a Super Bowl, right? The night before. So um, I definitely don't feel it's my place to judge her and her choices as a person. Here, but what I will speak to broadly is this, is that yes, absolutely, the commercial sex industry is being completely normalized and in many ways glamorized in our society as a whole, that is happening. You know, when I first entered the sex industry a million years ago, I'm dating myself. It was like this underground, not cool, absolutely not commercial thing. And it was still like a little bit more back alley kind of seedy, like you're, you're in the underbelly of society a little bit. It started to change as I was in the industry, 
but now it's definitely seen as a socially acceptable way in many pockets for a woman to make a living and pay for college or whatever. So that is definitely playing a role in it running rampant. And the the challenge is, is the commercial sex industry can't be looked at. Issues of sexual exploitation and trafficking can't be looked at in isolation from the commercial sex industry because they fuel each other. So as the sex industry is glamorized in our culture, that is going to then fuel demand also. It normalizes it and it fuels demand. And if there are not enough women to willingly enter the commercial sex industry, whether it be stripping, prostitution, escorting, whatever, porn, right? There are going to be people who will capitalize off of the demand and and exploit and traffic women, girls, and boys as well, and males to meet that demand. So it all is very interconnected. And But at the same time, when I see a performance like JLo's, I'm not like, oh my gosh, hand over my mouth. I can't believe what she's doing. I'm like, yeah, you know what? She's a product of our culture. She's a product of our culture that values women for their sexuality, for their appearance, and you know all the things that we celebrate her for. So she's just a product of our culture. And it is our culture that is normalizing the sexualization of women and celebrating the sexualization of women. It is our culture that is normalizing the objectification of women. So I just see that performance as it's not, it's not the root issue. Jayla is not the problem. It's that's a symptom of the culture that we're in. And so, yeah, we can throw a fit about JLo, but there are deeper issues going on here that we need to look at, you know? That's really insightful. And I, that it's when you're, when you said that it brought up for me, I just read this book, Girls and Sex by Peggy Orenstein. Ooh, I hadn't heard of it. And, oh girl, it's amazing. She has one called Girls and Sex and Boys and Sex. I've, for anyone who's listened to the podcast and follows me on Instagram, I've probably posted about it a gazillion times, but she is a New York Times journalist. And for almost two decades, she traveled the U.S. interviewing young women uh, high school, college age about hookup culture, consent, um, pornography, um, hookup, like all, all the things and mm-hmm. online dating, everything. And, and, sh- and then she did that for boys. Cause she was like, we, if, uh, if we're going to talk about what's happening for girls, we have to talk about what's happening with boys as well. Right. And in her Girls in Sex book, she talks about um, the very mixed messages of female celebrities who, by all accounts, they're like, like a. I can't speak for JLo because I don't know what's inside her mind, but um, she mentions like Lady Gaga, Beyonce, and I'm like the biggest Beyonce fan. Love I love Beyonce. her. Yeah. But oh, she's so amazing. And how she's like, you know, they're living this female empowerment message yet like we she says that hypersexualization for women is so visible in our culture that it's invisible exactly we don't even see it yeah so then these women are like i'm powerful i'm strong and men the patriarchy isn't sexualizing me i'm sexualizing myself by wearing like you would never see a male performer at the super bowl wear exactly. be half naked yeah and so she's like her whole thing is so we think we're empowered but we're still in bondage to the system that we live in right and it's it's like hard for me cuz I, I see like beauty and embracing our body and sexuality when growing up in Southern Christian culture, there was so much, so many damaging messages about the female body being right. um, dangerous, yeah. perverted, yeah. bad, dirty, wrong. And so to see someone in confidence embrace that. Right. Um, so, so there's time when I'm like, so what does it look like to walk this out in a healthy way? Right. Um, but I think it, it kind of reminds me of what you were saying of like, she, it's not about her. It's about the system that we live in and the culture that we're produced in. And mm-hmm. Orenstein in her book also says something like something that we have to acknowledge is girls are hypersexualized from the time they're toddlers in a yeah. way that men never are yeah. and will never fully be able to understand. Right. So the same people that are like, keep your clothes on are the ones that are addicted to porn. And then Mm -hmm. girls are, there's, you know, itty bitty booty shorts for 11 year old girls that 
are never going to be there for guys. And so it's just seems like this really confusing conversation to navigate. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, another awesome book called Female Chauvinist Pigs by, I forgot the first name, but Lee. Ariel Levy. Ariel Levy. I love it. But again, yes. very similar in talking about how it's this internalized kind of like almost this internalized sexism where we're mm-hmm. exactly what you're saying. Just we're subscribing to the idea that, you know, women should be sexualized and that's where our value is. And we're sexualizing ourselves. And I love how you put it, that it's, it's invisible. It's so, it's so rampant that it's become invisible because it's been so normalized. And even when you look and it's, it's, it's growing, it's, um, you know, even when you look at strawberry shortcake, just as an example, and the, the, evolution of strawberry shortcake as a cartoon character back in the early eighties, when I was a little girl, she looked like a little rag doll with like ruffles and puffy sleeves and a long little, you know, little long dress. Right. And there's, I literally have a graphic that I use in some of my talks on the, the role that culture plays in fueling trafficking and exploitation. Um, where I show the progression of strawberry shortcake throughout the decades to now she has, you know, a very hypersexualized body and a short mini skirt and her, even her body language and positioning and images of her is very sexualized. But from the time little girls are tiny, we're handing them these dolls and these images of, of femininity that are completely sexualized. And we're saying, this is what it looks like to be female in our society. And it's a hypersexualized version of femininity. And I'm with you. I, on, and I came from actually a family and a culture where we were very comfortable with our bodies. My mom, like for mother's day was like, come with me to a sweat lodge in a nudist colony. If that gives you an idea of where I came from. Right. So I, so at the same time, I've had to learn about like the sacredness of my body and that, you know what, maybe I shouldn't sell it because it's actually a temple like that, you know, so I've had a a different experience than maybe someone who's come from a really super, um, background where the body has been shamed in that kind of way. Cause I didn't experience that. However, I did have a lot of shame because of the abuse that I experienced. So I think that it's very difficult to not have a complicated relationship with our sexuality and our body as, as anyone in this society, but especially women in this society. And, um, I definitely don't have all the answers for sure. And if someone finds them, please let me know. But I do think there has to be a balance here because the truth is God did create us with a sexuality. Sexuality is part of who we are. So it's figuring out how can we express that in a way that is reflective of our true identity and who we are and who we were created to be and is not shaming of who we are and who God created us to be, but also not disregarding either. And Lord help us find a balance. 2020 is in full swing and I don't know about you, but I am here for it. I'm also here human to human to ask you for support. Help me friend to help you. The Refined Collective podcast is one of my most favorite projects that I have ever worked on in my career, but it is definitely a labor of love. We have quite a bit of hard cost each month from software and subscription services to my team who edit and produce the episodes, to licensing music and running logistics for all things Refined Collective. Now, because of that, I want to invite you, yes, you, to join our Patreon community. Patreon is this incredible platform that helps listeners financially support their favorite podcasts. You can support the Refined Collective podcast for as little as $5 a month. And we made a bunch of fun different tiers that are jam-packed with free goodies and VIP access to our newest content. And you will be notified before anyone else about our upcoming live events. I'll also be going to you first to find out what questions you want answered and what topics you want covered moving forward. So in the midst of a wild year, I want to ask you, friend, if you'd be willing to link arms with my team and me and sharing some of the load and helping make the Refined Collective podcast the best it can possibly be. So if you want to learn more or sign up today, head on over to patreon.com slash the Refined Collective. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Refined Collective. Thank you so, so much for being a part of this community. I think that's where nuance comes into the conversation and gray. 
which I think in Christian circles can feel very scary. Um, it feels more, it feels a lot more comfortable when one plus one equals two and right. there are black and white rules right. and systems of, well, this is what embracing your sexuality looks like. This is what you should wear. This is what you shouldn't right. wear, you know, fingertip length shorts, whatever. Um, however, I think so much of what like we're stepping into is, man, like what's the context and what's the heart and what's the purpose? And right. is it possible? Do we have space for people to be on a journey? Right. Um, in, in all of this, cause I'm, I'm can only imagine I would, and I would love to hear from you, you know, you meet this girl who kind of like opens up a different world to you as you're stripping and like, I'm sure not overnight you didn't change, no, you no, know? And right. What, how damaging would it have been if you entered into a friendship with this girl and the first thing she said was, you better like stop wearing that skirt you're wearing or right. whatever. What was that like? Listen, exactly. Like she, that's funny you bring it up because I usually talk about that specifically. Like one of the biggest gifts that she gave me is space to let the Holy Spirit speak to me and not try to be the Holy Spirit for me. Because if she had said to me, okay, Harmony, now that you're going to church, you need to get off the pole, break up with the boyfriend, put on some clothes, your skirt's too short and stop cussing because you cuss like a sailor. Like I would have been like, peace out. And I think that's part of the problem. A lot of times, you know, um, uh, my friend and one of our pastors, Jen Toledo talks about this, but like a lot of times, unfortunately, the message of the, the body is the body, like capital C church to people is behave believe, and then you can belong. But really what we need to be communicating to people is that you belong to this family. There is a place for you. You already belong. And it's out of that place of belonging that we would be then inspired to, to believe. And then maybe some of our behaviors would change. But for me that, I mean, that's the most beautiful thing about the transformation I experienced it was, there was nothing about it that was behavioral modification. It truly came from this place of a revelation of my identity and who I am and who I was designed to be. And I wanted to make changes that I felt reflected what I was learning about who I am. So I didn't change. I didn't leave my exploiter. I didn't start dressing a little differently or start cussing a little bit less. Like I don't cuss like a sailor, to, whatever. Well, that's a whole nut. Let's just, I'll say where, okay. <laughs> I'm going to stay away from that kind of worms. But point being, I didn't start making those changes because someone else told me that I should. I did it because it's what I desired and what I felt like I was being invited to do as I walked out my path of growing and understanding of who God is and growing in relationship with him. And, you know, I think there needs to be a lot of space for people on the journey, especially in what I do. Like I, I would have run away screaming if someone had treated me like I was a project that needed to be fixed. And they gave me a set of rules and were like, you can belong here as long as you follow these rules. Seriously. Like <laughs> that, and that's not the invitation of Jesus to us, you know? So anywho, there's one of my soapboxes. <laughs> yes. yes, girl. Love the soapboxes. So then what does that look like practically for you now in treasures? Like what does the work that you guys do look like? Like I, I know just from listening to your interview with Brenda on God is Gray that you guys do a lot of work at the strip clubs. Mm-hmm. Walk me through some of that. What what's that like? Yeah. So, I mean, we're faith-based. That's just like Mm -hmm. how we originated. That's who I am and that's who Mm -hmm. we are, but there are no faith requirements. Um, Mm -hmm. and there, and one of our support group guidelines, for example, is that we respect everyone regardless of their religious and faith perspectives and spiritual perspectives. And there, and for us, like the faith piece comes into the work, quote unquote, work we do and the mentoring and the relationships that we're building as we are invited to bring it in. So one of our models, mm-hmm. one of the things that we talk about, we do, we do, tra- as you mentioned earlier, we do trainings to help other people effectively work with survivors of exploitation and trauma and trafficking. And one of the, the philosophies that we share that it's, it's, it's core to who we are is listen to the invitation what is it that we are being invited into? Are we being invited to talk about faith, share faith, you know, and if so, okay, then we can respond to that invitation. But there are some people who walk through our doors or connect with us that aren't in that place and we meet them where they're at. And we, we go into the places and the spaces that we're invited. And we talk about the things that we're being invited to. And in that way, I think, you know, 
we're showing them we respect who they are and we love who they are as they are. And it's what I've really discovered is that sometimes the most therapeutic thing isn't therapy. It's, it's a healthy reciprocal relationship where you feel emotionally safe. And that's the kind of environment that I really think that we're designed to grow and to thrive in. And so as we create that safe space for women to come as they are and invite us into what they want to invite us into, many of them end up choosing faith as the part of their process. And even for the ones that don't, we're going to still love on them and meet them where they're at and go where we're invited. And so that's kind of what it looks like for us. I mean, I think just that whole idea, the posture of listen to the invitation is there's something so there's something so I'm trying to find the right word sacred about that, Mm -hmm. I think. Because when I enter into a relationship with anybody with the ulterior motive of, well, I want to save, fix, correct, um, make them more like me, um, change their behavior, change their dress, change their tone, whatever, that's not love. Right. Because love, love is outward focused. Love is heart centered. Love is, I mean, whenever I read about Jesus, like, Jesus always led with kindness and acceptance and offering dignity to people. And so if I'm loving with an agenda, that's not love, it's manipulation. Right. And so to have a pot, I feel like the only way we can truly love others is to have a posture of invitation as opposed to agenda. Cause when I have an agenda, I have a demand on another right. human and totally. that's not love. <laughs> yeah. And there is, um, a woman, Roe Dodgen, that has really was the one that brought that kind of listen to the invitation to um, the work that we do at Treasures. And it really is, I believe, God's posture towards us. Like he, he doesn't treat us like, you know, robots. He doesn't want us to just be like obedient robots following his rules, right? We're participating with him in relationship and interaction. And I wish I could remember who said this, but um, someone said that basically we're, we're meeting in this middle place and we're saying to God, I will to participate what is willed. And so it's not God saying, this is my will, do it, right? And it's not uh, you know us passively just obeying. He, he doesn't want our passive obedience. He wants our relationship, right? And so it's this place where our will is coming into alignment with God's will as this like mutual interaction because God respects our will. And ultimately I think that's what he's doing is he's inviting us, right? He's inviting us into relationship. He's inviting us, you know, to walk with him and, and that's his way. And so when you say that it's sacred, I really do think it is because I think that that's, that's the Jesus that I've experienced is a Jesus who is full of invitations that I can choose to respond to or not in my free will that he's given me. You have an 11 year old, you have a toddler, you and your husband mm-hmm. both are working full time. It sounds like you have a really full life. You're doing Ted talks. You're, you know, you have, you're doing galas. What would you tell your 19 year old self and, and that, and could you ever have imagined that this would be your life now? Oh, you know, I, I didn't, I wouldn't, it's better than I could have imagined in my, my biggest imagination, um, for sure. Not perfect. Obviously I still have grief and pain and trauma like everyone else and, you know, working through it. And what would I tell my 19 year old self, maybe to listen to the invitation (laughs) to, and I think one of the things I've always struggled with even then is, um, hyperactivity in the, in the sense of like busyness and hypervigilance that looks like busyness. And it, it has been a coping mechanism to keep me disconnected. And so I would say to her, Harmony, you're a human being, not a human doing. And if you can quiet yourself enough and get still enough and be uncomfortable with what you have to face in that stillness and quietness and listen to the invitation, listen to that, that, gentle, quiet voice that's inviting you into this process of becoming who you were truly created to become. And that it's, it's a safe process because you're in the hands of a safe God who is a gentleman and doesn't rush you. And I would just encourage my younger self to, to do exactly that and to just enter into that process and to listen to the invitation and to get still enough to hear it. 
hyperactivity and hypervigilance that maybe that can be like part two of a conversation with you. (laughs) Um, hello. Um, that's, I feel like that's such a real thing. And I, Mm -hmm. I struggle with that same thing, but that'll be for next time. Um, I just am so grateful for you sharing your heart and your story. And I know there's so much more there. And can you just tell us how we can first hear more of your story? Mm -hmm. And because I know there's so many more layers there and how we can learn more about treasures, how we can get involved, all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you can learn more about my story in my memoir, Scars and Stilettos. And I, I share um, just more about, you know, what we've talked about today in that process of how I got into that relationship and got into exploitation, but also more importantly, how I got out. And in the back of the book, I've also included a section called Getting Past Your Past. So the book itself is a memoir and it's written very much in this way. It's It reads almost like a novel. Um, it was important to me to not come in with a teaching or preaching voice, but to tell the story. But in the back of the book, there's a section called Getting Past Your Past that gives some of the the tools and the the things that have really helped me get past my past and to overcome the pain of the abuse from my past. And so that could hopefully be helpful to people who have a history of abuse or trauma or family dysfunction. And then people can connect with us. Um, I am a treasure.com is the treasures website. I am a treasure.com. I also have a, um, my website where I write a lot of blogs on codependency and recovery is harmonygrillo.com. And then our social media for both harmony and treasures are at Harmony Grillo for all the Harmony Grillo stuff and at Treasures LA for all the treasure stuff on all the different platforms you can find us. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I want to read some of your codependency stuff. Um, hello. That stuff sounds incredible. Yeah, that's my next book. <laughs> Yay. Oh, <laughs> yes. Are you working on it right now? I am. I just submit proposal my proposal to a couple of agents this week. So we'll see. Congratulations. That I cannot wait to read that. Thank you. That's awesome. Well, um, take care and we'll talk soon. (laughs) Okay. Talk to you later. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Refined Collective Podcast. If you are new here, maybe you've listened for a long time and there's topics, questions, comments, concerns that you have about what we're up to. Follow us on Instagram, The Refined Woman. Send me a DM and I will get back to you and let me know what you want to hear about. Let me know what you want to talk about. And I would love to make that happen for you. Have such a fabulous day. (laughs) Bye.